0: Well, I mentioned the idea of taking a look at what love is. And, uh, you know, this is way before Neil's time, but I was talking to Mark, who wonderfully plays our cajon with us at lunch the other day. And we were talking about, we kind of have this shared mutual love for sort of like classic rock. Now, uh, in the mid-80s, that was sort of the highlight of classic rock. And I was only seven when this song came out, but I guarantee you you've heard it. It's by the band Foreigner. And it's a very famous song. It's called, I Want to Know What Love Is. Y'all ever heard this? I want to know what love is. You know, that's the, that's the deal. And the second line is what? I want you to show me. Well, listen, that is a great place to start tonight's sermon. And here's why. Because it's this great, it's this, it's this great longing to have love both defined and demonstrated. And the reason I think it's such a great place to start is because I think it gets at our deep longing to have those very same questions answered. Listen to this. We long to be loved, so much so that we'll create strategies to cover the pain of not having it. Listen to this. That's what Letitia did, who was dumped by her fiancé three months before the wedding. Oh, she went on and had the ceremony anyways, getting married, no joke, to herself. She promised to always love and never to leave or forsake herself. Broken hearts ache, y'all, don't they? So much so that we'll scheme to cover the pain. I think we long to be loved even though it's hard to find. You might remember the comedian Aziz Ansari, where he once asked asked this question, where are all the good, normal, nice, non-crazy people? And this is where people come back to him and say this, go to the grocery store or go to a museum. He says, I've gone to both and it doesn't quite work out. But maybe if I spent as much time at Whole Foods as I do drinking at bars, I'd have a different experience. I would also be a weirdo that hangs out at the grocery stores way too long. But I would have to live off those little samples, etc. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. Here's what I'm trying to get at. We long to be loved, even though it's hard to find. We long to be loved just by somebody, anybody. Listen to this story, the story of Davian Only. You might remember him. He was a 16-year-old boy who pleaded in front of a church one day in Florida that somebody would adopt him. Here are his words. I'll take anyone. Old or young, dad or mom, black, white, purple, I don't care. I know God hasn't given up on me, so I'm not giving up either. It doesn't matter who it is. We all want somebody to love us. We long to be loved even though it can bring out the nth degree of awkwardness. I mean, think about this. Think of the seventh grade boy who wants to take a girl to the dance, so he sells himself out for her attention. She tells a regular story, and he breaks out in laughter because he's trying to impress her. Wait, maybe that was only me. But still, you get the drift, okay? And we long to be loved lastly and not just be told that we're lovely. Bachelor contestant. On Sean Lowe's season, when she was not given a rose, she said this, I don't want to be told anymore that I'm a great girl and that I'll find somebody and that somebody will be lucky to have me. I don't want to be told that anymore. Why? Because we long to be loved and not just be told that we're lovely. We saw last week that relationships are profoundly broken, that we were made for them, but they are broken. But this week, we're going to see that brokenness is not the final word on relationships. Not in God's economy. No way. You see, relationships themselves are not stranded in hopelessness. They're not stranded in despair. They're not doomed to misery. In other words, there is real hope for real goodness and flourishing in relationships. Yes, they can flourish. Dating relationships can actually, you know what, be good. Marriages can actually be healed, but how, how? Well, God himself has begun the process of redeeming and renewing relationships. And he has promised to make all things new, including relationships themselves. And tonight, John takes us to the very source the very fountain, as it were, and gives us the fuel for the healing of all relationships. That's a grand statement I'm making tonight, by the way. The healing of all, of every single relationship. He's taking us to the fountain tonight. How does He do that? He is going to say that the way that God restores relationships between people is by first restoring relationships between people and Himself. Why? Why does God start there? Like, where, why is that ground zero for God? Well, we have said in weeks past that our first fractured relationship is not with people, but it's with God Himself. And so God goes to the heart. He goes to the heart of the issue to lay redemption there, to bring rescue there, to bring healing there, as it were. And so God goes there, and the Apostle John tonight is going to take us to the why what prompts God to want to reconcile relationships between Himself and between us? One word, and here it is: it's what we all long for. It's love. It's love. You might be a cynic like me. You might be a hopeless romantic. I don't know where you're coming from tonight, but tonight John's going to show us two things. First of all, we're going to take a look at the definition of love, and then secondly, the demonstration of love. So we're answering the very questions that foreigner ask. I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. Let's take a look. Beginning, firstly, by the definition of love. He's going to show us in these verses here what it is. And just like the title you know, of this suggests, like the heart of love, John tells us, in, frankly, in verse 7 and 10. Look at it with me there. Let's just go there for a second. Verse 7, he says as following. Let us love one another, here it is, for love is from God. And then again in verse 10, he says this, In this, so in other words, in what follows is love. Not that we have loved God, but here it is, but that he has loved us and sent his sons and so on and so forth. And the point is, is this, three times in this text, and again we could take a look at verse 11 because it says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, there it is, if God so loved us, three times in this text, I want you to see this, that love is defined by God doing something. I think that's two key words. It's God doing something. That's what this text is showing us very, very clearly. And here's what I mean. Love in John's mind, in John's eyes, is God acting. God getting involved. God doing something. It's God acting for the benefit of those whom He loves. And here it is. Even at great cost to Himself, as we'll see in just a little bit. In short, and this is what I want you to see tonight, the baseline for understanding what love is, that kind of first sub-point tonight, is to look at God's committed acting for the good of another at great sacrifice to Himself. That love is at its core God God's commitment, his staying power to do good to people even at great cost unto himself. That's what he's showing us what love is. Think about it this way. The reason God loves in action. Like this is what God does is because it's because who this is who God is. I didn't say that very well. The reason God loves in action is because at his core what theologians call one of the attributes of God what God is in his essence, who he is, is what verse 8 tells us. Did you catch it? Look at it. God is love. Now, God is a lot of things, but he's not less than love. And what we're doing, our, when we're trying to understand our Bibles, we've got to make sure that we don't reduce God down to only one of his attributes. But he's not less than this. And that's what John wants us to see. You see why? This means that God's saving love for his people Think about this, originates in himself, not in anything lovely in us, not because he himself, but because he himself is love. He loves his people because he delights to love. That's what he, that's what he is. Think about it this way a little illustration. Um, when I say that I love the beach, I love it because it's intrinsically enjoyable. Like I love the sunsets, I love the waves. I love the sand and my toes. I love the great seafood. I love all of these things because of what the beach affords to me, because of what it gives. That's a different sense of the word love than I'd like to use it now, which is when I talk about my children. You see, when our twins were in the womb, and frankly, when our third was, I, there, there just came a moment. There just came a moment where I said, I've never met them. I've only seen them on a sonogram. And I don't care what they look like. I love them. They're mine. I love them simply because they're mine. I'm committed to them, and I'm committed to them all my days. And and I think that's the picture of what this text is showing us. that It is God's commitment because it, it wells up within Himself. See, here's the thing. From all eternity, y'all, it has been this way. This is how He loves. Take a look up the screens. Let me show you this. This comes directly right out of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Listen to this. Before the foundation of the world, in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That text is telling you that if you are in Christ Jesus, that was settled before the first Adam was made. Why? Because who God is. That's what this is telling us. And you might think, is that just a New Testament thing? No, it's not. It's actually an Old Testament thing, and that's why it makes sense in the New Testament. Here's why. Take a look at this. In the Old Testament, God freely loves his people, Israel. They have blown it, they can't get it together. Does that sound familiar? If there's ever a time for an amen, that was it. Right? Okay. (laughs) Here it is screw-ups. They cannot figure out how to love, how to have to be faithful to God. And I want you to listen, listen to what God says about them. Here it is. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth who are on the face of the earth. That is, that group of people. Here it is. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you. So it's not because y'all were awesome, because y'all were crushing it. That's not why. Here is why. For you were the fewest of people. Sorry, verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Listen, looking at the screen. Let me just, I'm going to turn around backwards. The Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. So the Lord loves them. Now you ask the question, why? Why does God love them? And here it is. Here's the logic. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why does God love you? Because He loves you. It doesn't make sense to your mind. And it ought not. Because you're getting caught up in the very divine logic of God's heart for you. That He loves because He loves. He delights because He delights. And don't you know if you're in Jesus, that is true of you. Here's what I hope you'll see tonight. That what lies at the very heart of the Gospel is not you. What lies at the very heart of the good news about why God loves you is not because you're awesome. It's not because you're pretty enough. It's not because you're smart enough or you're beautiful enough. It's not because of the color of your skin or what socioeconomic background you came from. The reason God delights to shine His face on you is because God loves to love. And when you begin to see that, you begin to understand something about what love is in John's mind. That's my first point tonight, to show you first what love is. Now, I'm still underneath this idea of the definition of love, but we have to take a look as well at what God is saying that love is not. One last little quote. We read this in Freshman Bible study. Plug, if you're not in Bible study, you want to get Freshman Bible study yesterday. Here it is. We read this very line. It's talking about God's heart for Adam and Eve at the very beginning. Listen to what it says. It just reads as follows They were lovely because God loved them. And you know that's true of you. If you're in Jesus, that's your story. That you were lovely. Not because you're so awesome. And you might be but because God loves you. That's the story. It's beautiful. It's best news you're going to hear tonight. Secondly, the idea of what love is not. Take a look with me at verse 10. This is the chunk of my sermon tonight, so y'all just hang with me on this. I know it's disproportional, so I'm not going to go this long on the second point. Let's talk tonight about, as well, about what God is not only saying what love is, but let's take a look at what it's not. Take a look at verse 10 with me right there. And this is love. Here it is. Not that we have loved God, full stop. The point is this: John is saying that the definition of love itself is not our love to God. Do you catch that? That so, God, the definition of love is not something that man gives unto God. Nope, bad idea. The definition of love, from we saw earlier, is God loving us, and that means everything. And I'd like to show you how. When you see this, you begin to see immediately the contrast that exists between what the Scriptures are saying and the way that our modern culture, the world that you live in, speaks about what love is. What do I mean? Here it is. John is saying, as we said earlier, that love is an action. That love is God doing something. What? In just a second we'll see. The culture says what, though? That love is primarily a feeling. That love is primarily an emotional state that it's a primarily an internal way of being in the world. And what the Bible is saying is, is that that's actually the deception of love. It's in quotes. It's to see, to see that that's what God is getting at. Look, it's the warm fuzzies, in other words. A completely subjective experience. Is it bad? No. But it's not the definition of what God is talking about here. I mean, look, notice the text. How many of y'all caught it when it said this? In this is love. In this, the love of God was manifest. God gets the warm fuzzies when he thinks of you. That's not what the text says. That's not what it's about. Let me see if I can illustrate this culturally from a movie. It came out several years ago. It's a movie called Celeste and Jesse Forever. Anybody see that movie? That's awesome. About as many hands went up four years ago when I used this too. So change your illustrations. Um, Okay, here it is. It's the story of a couple who has been long-time friends and then they get married. And then eventually they separate and divorce. It was a great movie, but this last scene is what stuck out to me. Here it is. The couple is literally leaving the lawyer's office after having inked the divorce papers. And they're laughing and they're cutting up. And it's just this major, like, it's, it's, it's this major, like, it cuts against the grain of what you would expect, the way the, movie's, uh, ha- the movie has been made. And here's what happens. They're sitting on the bench, and again, Celeste is the girl, Jesse's the boy. And they're sitting on a park bench outside, and Jessie, for Jesse, there's another woman. And here's what Celeste says. She says, do you love her? And he nods, yes. She replies, it's worth fighting for. And then they stand up, and she says, you deserve to be happy. I want that for you. And then Jesse replies, You too. And then, here it is, just before he kisses her, he says, I love you. And as I watched that scene, I ached. Because why? Because it highlights the real confusion that surrounds what we think love is. If she is his best friend, as he's professed, and love is worth fighting for, are you ready? Why not fight for her? You see how that works? That's what I'm trying to say. I don't get this, right? But the message is this. I will commit to you as long as I feel it. I'm committed to you as long as you give me the warm fuzzies. And I know you're going to stay with me as long as I give you the warm fuzzies. And all of a sudden, voila, we got a culture that thinks that that's what love is. And what the Scripture comes to us and says tonight is you couldn't be further from the truth. Because what this means, and this is where we're going to sort of spell this out for a little bit as I dive in for two crucial kind of points of application. First, how comforting is it to know that God's commitment to us isn't based on our love for Him? You know that, right? So you know that you can actually take a a smoke break, as it were, with all the talk about how on fire for Jesus you are. You can actually be honest with yourself and with friends and say things like this. Yeah, I'm just really kind of struggling with Jesus today. He and I are kind of in a fight because I don't like my life right now. Christianity affords you that opportunity to be honest like that. You know why? Because your relationship with Him is not not as well as... It's not bound up in how on fire for God you are. So you can chill. You can rest. Because it's not your grip on God that saves you. It's His grip on you. That's what the gospel is all about. Secondly, and this is where I think it's most important as we begin to talk about relationships. I'm going to skip over this next slide. Sorry, y'all. I'm not even going to use it. So it's a great song. You can read about it, learn about it more later. We're going to go to our second point in just a second. Here's an aside as we're talking about relationships that I want you to see. This means that what lies at the biblical idea of love is not primarily a feeling, but it is a commitment. You have to talk about love this way. Feeling love is sure to follow, but it can't be first. Love is an action of commitment first, and the feelings follow. You know, it's really interesting. When I think about my own marriage, I'm just let y'all in for a second. Laura and I have been married for 11 years now, and I want to let you know this is something you need to understand. The feelings really do come and go. Do you, have, do you have room for that in your mind as you consider marriage? There are days that when we fight and we say we're sorry and we repent, I don't always feel in love with her, nor her with me. But what makes our marriage beautiful and what makes our marriage worth fighting for is that she's committed to me in spite of all of my junk. And I'm committed to her in spite of all of her junk. Because when we made promises... That till death do us part. We never said things like this. So long as you make me feel good, I'm in. In modern marriages, you can hear them. They'll say things like this. Uh, Till death do us part. Here it is. As long as our love shall last. If anybody ever gets you to say that in your wedding vows, refuse it. Because it's not a good promise. Because you know why? You're going to fight on your honeymoon. (laughs) And the love ain't going to last. I'm trying to be sober-minded for you about what relationships are actually like. And what the Bible is showing us, and what we're going to continue to look at over and over the rest of the semester, is that what lies at the idea of biblical love in this sense is an idea of commitment. I am not poo-pooing feelings. They're wonderful, but they're not the basis. They're not the grounds for what God is speaking about here. That's what I needed you to say. I mean, I needed needed you to hear. Okay. Secondly, let's move on. The demonstration of our love. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Here it is. We said earlier that love is primarily an action. And if love is primarily an action, here's the payoff pitch. What kind of action is it? And keep in mind, as we said, the idea of costly sacrifice for the good of the other. And here's what we see. Verse 9, God demonstrating his love for us when John says this. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest. Or in this, the, the, the love of God was shown forth is another way of translating that. Words, this, is the, this is the love of God put on display. For This is love in action. That's what he's saying. What is it? Here it is. That God sent His only Son into the world. That's the action that God takes to demonstrate His love. God did not remain distant, in other words. He demonstrates His love for us by getting His hands messy, by getting involved in our lives. You see, in Jesus, God took on flesh. He moved into the neighborhood, as it were, in our world. And then verse 10 shows us the purpose of Him coming. Did you catch it? He says this, He loved us and sent His Son, what? To be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big $10 theological word, propitiation. And all it means is this, a propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away the settled displeasure of God towards sin, and then because of that sacrifice, grants favor and kindness. And what John is saying, in other words, is that Jesus is that sacrifice that turned away God's righteous anger towards sin, that that you and I deserve, and and now gives us His kindness and His delight. And when he, Jesus, was consumed in death, so was God's displeasure towards us. And this means this, y'all, that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we had nothing lovely in us, while we were actually guilty, he died for us in Christ. And now he loves and accepts us as sons and daughters. Why might this matter for you and for me? Again, to think about relationships. John wants us to understand an incredibly important point tonight, y'all, because of what follows from Christ's death. And here it is. That that now is the power to love other people, even our enemies. Even the people that that tick us off, that we don't like, even the people that don't deserve love. Because after all, here's the question, ready? And every single one of you ought to think about this. Did you deserve it? Were you so awesome? Were you crushing life and God saw you and said, man, he or she is just nailing it, they get my love? No. Remember the text we read? I love you because I love you. When that begins to get down in your bones, it changes, it alters, it reprograms the way that you think about relationships. Why? Because it not only gives you humility for what Christ did for you, but listen, listen. It gives you the power to love other people at their worst because, hello, God loved you when you were at your worst. That's what this is saying, you see. You see, you have to see this, that no matter what the other person has done to you, it's a bold statement, that you've done far worse to God. And He loved you in spite of it. And he sent his son, Jesus, for you as an act of that love, as a demonstration of that love to bring you home to himself. And so, therefore, you're able to enter into relationship without having to demand your rights. Remember, he died for you. He forgave you. He gave up his rights. He didn't hold your sin against you. He held it against himself. So a couple of ways to drive the same. first. It will be costly to demonstrate love to other people in our lives. To make love real. You see, in most cases, it will mean caring for and moving toward difficult people despite their sin against you. And that will mean extending forgiveness. And what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is essentially eating the cost. Eating the cost. That they have done against you as a way to promote peace. That's what forgiveness is it's you absorbing the debt. By the way, that's what Jesus does for you. And secondly, secondly, vulnerability. As relationships go, that is, interpersonally, I'm talking primarily perhaps about dating relationships. That is why, in marriage itself, that's why vulnerability is so dadgum hard and yet necessary for love to love another person will cost you your self protection it will do that you will risk being hurt it is inevitable and some of us are scared of even entering into a relationship because we're afraid of potentially getting hurt but you can't have it any other way you really can't and the you know one of my favorite writers old clive staples lewis cs lewis That's what he writes from the Four Loves. Listen to this. It's unbelievable. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything. And your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, Airless. It will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Love and safety can't coexist. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It can't exist. They can't coexist. You know why? How can they if they didn't for Jesus himself? For him to love you wasn't to set was safe for him. It cost him his life. Why do we think it's going to be any different? Of course, we can always choose not to, but with that safety will come jadedness, cynicism, selfishness, and ultimately loneliness, which when fully blossomed in a life, if you ask me, are far worse than a broken heart. You realize, therefore, that most of you are likely not afraid of entering into relationships and them actually not working out. Some of the greatest fears that we have when it comes to relationships is actually them working out. Long-term marriage is a lot more scary than a breakup. And you just intuitively know it. Because it's going to require more of you. But the gospel gives you the power to be able to do that. How? This is where I'm landing the plane. Jesus himself, when he was dying on the cross, the book of Hebrews says that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. He sought that joy through great vulnerability by laying down his life And he thought that it was better, way, way better, to become vulnerable, even to death. Not at the risk of his life. This is what's so important. Not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of it. To get the reward, his joy, his joy rather, than not become vulnerable and not receive it. It was a high stakes game. But Jesus took all of his chips and pushed them in the middle of the table. And what was that great joy? Joy. Do you remember what we read from Deuteronomy chapter 7? His treasured possession. Was that some large amount of money? No, it isn't money and it wasn't stuff. Do you know what it was? It was you. It was You, you are His treasured possession. That's what He calls His people. And here's the thing. You are saved not because you're lovely. You're lovely because God has loved you. You're saved through relationship with Him so that you can begin to bring his love even to your enemies. And here's where I just want to end. When that begins to get at your longings, you can finally breathe. You can finally rest. And you finally have the power to begin to love other people. I told you the promise tonight was that there was power tonight to heal any relationship. I hope I've succeeded in showing you how. Jesus really is this good. Believe it. Believe it. Take him and live. Let's pray.